Welcome to Make and Mixtapes. I'm Tom, and in this episode, we talk about becoming a marketing leader and nerd out over Airtable. Make and Mixtapes is all about the marketing and business experts who are nailing it in their field. From content marketing to e commerce, SaaS to YouTube, I'm here to share their stories. Today, I'm joined by Cameron Jenkins, content lead at Shopify. Now, when Cameron agreed to chat with me, I was most excited to explore her approach to content marketing at Shopify itself. But like all conversations, this turned into something so much more. We talk about Cameron's career journey, becoming a marketing leader during a time she thought it wasn't for her, and her approach to hiring and managing other marketers to help achieve the right business goals. We also dive into her content operations and distribution approach at Shopify, where she's in charge of driving awareness for their retail offering. This is a great episode for anyone looking to start or advance their career in marketing. Quick heads up, I was recovering from a sore throat when we recorded this episode, so please excuse my croaky voice, but most importantly, enjoy the show. Cool, Cameron, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. So one thing I've noticed about a few in-house marketers that I've spoken with on this podcast is they kind of all come from an agency background and it seems to have contributed to their success. I'd love to hear about, you know, how that prepared you for in-house marketing life and what you learned through that process. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I was just talking to someone this morning and said the same thing. Like anecdotally, I just feel like I see so many people getting their start in the agency life. And then they move on to almost like niche down into in-house where they're able to focus on just one, one client who is their employer. So yeah, I would say agency life is a really good like crash course for any marketer. Like you don't have to start this way, obviously, but I think it's a good crash course because you're able to work on a lot of different clients, which gives you a good breadth of experience right away. I mean, you're kind of thrown into being able to handle all different kinds of things. I also think it's pretty beneficial, right, when you're getting started, because you're usually not always depending on the size of the agency, but you're working with people who also do what you do. So you have a lot of like mentorship opportunities and you can kind of learn from people within your own department when you're first getting started. Whereas in-house, sometimes you're getting hired, you're the only content marketer, or you're the, you're the only SEO. So it's kind of nice agency world. You have like a community around you too. Yeah, that's awesome. Did I spot that you built and led a team of SEO specialists as well? Yeah, so at my agency, so I, I was there for a while. I don't know if you saw that like on my LinkedIn or anything, but I was there for like six and a half years. And so when I was hired, I was employee like number 50. And so I was able to fortunately like grow with the company. So it didn't take long. And I was like, found myself as like one of the more senior SEO on content people. So I was able to kind of like lead the team that way, just being able to kind of like grow with the company, add people under me. And yeah, I was really thankful for that opportunity. I ended up like the team I managed was very big still to date the biggest one I had managed. It was like 26 people or something like that. So yeah. You're the first person I've spoken to who has stuck around with an agency for that long. People kind of get their start after two years. They're sick of not seeing the results on the back end of it. I think another guest of mine's actually said 
going in-house was better because you can actually execute on the work. Why did you stick around in the agency world for so long? Yeah, it, when you think about the reasons why people stay anywhere uh, working for any amount of time, I think it a lot of times it either comes down to like the work itself, the, like the mission of the company, the work you're doing, all of that stuff, or the other side of that coin is like the relationships, like who you're working with, what the the office or the like company culture in office is like. And for me, it was the latter. So not to say I hated the former um, at my agency, but I was like close in proximity to where I lived. So I knew a lot of people going into the company. My husband actually still works there. And so there's just like a lot of like familiarity there. I knew so many of the people close to where I live, like I said, so we we're able to do a lot of things outside of work, like hang out and all that stuff. So for me, it was really about those relationships. And I guess part of that as well, I think I mentioned was just growing with the company. I was able to get leadership opportunities. Whereas if I, I think were to join a bigger company earlier on in my career, I don't think I would have had that opportunity at least right away to be able to lead a team like that coming in brand new. So it was kind of nice being able to like leverage my time at that company into like leadership opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you, I mean, as you've probably experienced, if you were to join, say, an quote unquote enterprise level organization, you'd be a cog in a wheel, right? But you managed to build something from scratch. And I imagine like a lot of the processes as well. You totally. That was actually one of my favorite parts and still is one of the favorite parts of my job. Anytime I get the chance to like lead a team or lead a program, I really love building in workflows and processes, not to like, I see them not as like limiting factors, but they help you scale. Once you have this like, hey, this is what like our formula or our, our workflow looks like. Now we can take that and, and it's repeatable and we can keep doing it and we can keep growing and we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So I really loved that aspect of my job then and my job now too. Yeah. What are some kind of surprising things you've learned over the years about building out a team that you wouldn't have expected back then, you know, because it can seem like quite a daunting process, like attracting the right people, nurturing them, building processes that they can follow. Is there anything that you've learned that kind of makes that a lot easier now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think so. One of the things that I learned that I didn't expect was that that someone like me could be in a leadership position, because I think we all have or most of us have like a stereotype of what a team lead is or like what a, a boss or a manager is. And I just didn't peg myself as someone that would do that. I see myself more as like a heads down kind of worker and I could do the job really well. But I think being given those leadership opportunities allowed me to see that, oh, hey, like it doesn't just look one way. Like I'm a good listener. I'm a good advocate. Like I can actually be a good lead and enjoy it too. I think if anyone's in that kind of similar situation where, you know, you're not sure if you're ready for leadership or if you want to do that, I would say like the best way to kind of get into that and learn is like, try it, try it. And you might enjoy it. Um, you might find that you're really good at it. Not ever. It's not for everyone, obviously, but I think that's one of the main things I, I learned that was surprising to me was that like, oh, someone like me can do this. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can find someone who encourages you and nurtures you to do that as well, it sounds like you may have had that those people around you by the sounds of it, right? Yeah, it was interesting. I think at the agency I was at, I was there so long that I was so aware of the things that they needed and I could see the gaps and like you know when you're so familiar with a company you kind of you know exactly what they need you have that company history you've just been through it enough times to know like here's what I would fix if I had a team here's what I would do and that's exactly what I did so I got to the point where 
I knew enough people on the executive team. I mean, we were all kind of like starting the company together, it seemed like, because I was there so early on that I pitched them the idea for the team that I ended up managing. And they were like, yes, absolutely. And so they definitely, I couldn't have done it without their support and them believing in me and buying into what I was, what I was selling. <laughs> so that, that, that ended up being really great. And I think like just trusting people and letting them do what you know that they can do is like one of the best opportunities I was given. And how did you kind of following your career trail here a little bit, how did you apply those learnings when you were building out a team at say Moz as well as what you're doing at Shopify today? Yeah, definitely. So it was interesting going from agency life to in-house because when I did transition from my agency to Moz, I was actually a contractor. So I was back in the IC seat, the individual contributor seat, and I was like, what do I do with this? What do I do with hands? <laughs> it was very like abrupt in the, like in a good way. I was glad to be back in that kind of role um, just for a different reason. I, I wanted the opportunity to work with Moz and for Moz, and it was just a really cool opportunity. So I was like, I'm thankful for any opportunity to work with you guys. I don't care if it's a manager or like an IC in this contract role. And so, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was definitely, it's not impossible to go from management back to individual contributor. I think a lot of people find that that's the right path for them. But for me, I found it hard to just do the work without asking like, why and interrogating like our processes and they were like you're just a contractor <laughs> but i think yeah it's definitely that's something i would watch out for i guess if you were to like switch from management to individual contributor again but at botify I was able to briefly have a team so it was one in-house person and then i managed some freelance resources as well that was a smaller startup so i think like it was definitely different going from managing like a big team where a lot of your problems are like process related and like just workflow type related problems to in-house being more okay I have like one or two people I'm managing the problems are a lot more nuanced than that and they're less like problems of scale and more problems of like people and I imagine hiring for other marketing roles within a startup can be quite tricky when you're figuring out what roles to prioritize versus say you know joining a operation like Shopify where the objectives are very clear-cut and this is an assumption correct me if I'm wrong so at Botify how did you know who the first marketing hire that you needed to get on board was and how did you figure out how to prioritize that too yeah I was fortunate to have a really great boss our CMO who kind of mentored me she was definitely like she had been there before she had been in these roles at startups before where she's like hire number one on the marketing team and she was given the directive like build it and <laughs> just just do it and so i was fortunate enough to be able to not only like watch her do that but have her guidance um you know when it came to hiring out for the content team so it was really interesting working through that with her and trying to prioritize things with her i mean for us it was very much just about like okay what do i need you for and then whatever you don't have time for let's hire someone to fill that gap so that made it somewhat easy like she wanted me to do strategy and more higher level stuff like managing our freelance design agency and our freelance PR agency who were, we were working with at the time and anything else like the day-to-day -day writing, I didn't have time for. So we knew then, okay, let's hire a copywriter. Like we need someone to just 
do that. And that, that made it a little bit easier. So find yourself a good CMO or VP of marketing. (laughs) Absolutely. It sounds like you hired for the things that became too painful to do yourself, right? A hundred percent. I think we saw some things as important, obviously, but if you, you don't want to use like someone to do both things, I think like it was hard that in the times that I was doing both like strategy and execution, I felt like I wasn't doing either well. So I think just deciding like, I'm going to stick to this one thing and delegate the rest. I think that's a smart way to go. Absolutely. What does an SEO wordsmith do, by the way? Because it's the first time I've ever seen that job title and it sounds cool. Yes. (laughs) And that is actually what drew me to Moz. So being in the agency world, I was, so I was leading the SEO and content or one arm of the SEO and content team. Um, so I saw myself more as a practitioner rather than, you know, a marketer marketing for that. And Moz being an SEO SaaS company, like they are creating educational content at the top of the funnels. Like what is SEO? How does it work? All of that stuff. So instead of hiring for a content marketer, so someone that might be a good writer and a good marketing minded person, who, but who doesn't know SEO, they opted to hire someone with SEO subject matter expertise who could also write. So that's what attracted me to the role because it was an SEO who was also a wordsmith who basically the job title was, or the job uh, description was, do you like teaching people about SEO? Do you like explaining complex processes and concepts and making them simple for anyone to understand? And that really spoke to me because that's as a manager and as someone who is responsible for a lot of SEO and content training in my agency, that really spoke to me because I'm like, I do that. <laughs> I would love yeah. to a company like Moss. Would you have classified yourself as a quote unquote content marketer before you saw that at all? I don't think so, which is funny. Like, I, I don't think I would have classified myself as a content marketer, although I have like plenty of content experience, but it was definitely different. I mean, in the agency world, I think a lot of what we were doing for the most part was, you know, before I was managing and I was actually doing a lot of the work, it was a lot of landing pages, to be honest. So we were a lot of like product and service pages. We were working with the paid ad team and doing content and copywriting for like, you know, conversions more so than um, attracting inbound traffic. Um, And then SEO was more technical SEO and local SEO because we dealt with a lot of um, location-based clients, you know, and their GMB and their Yelps and all of that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I definitely didn't see myself as a content marketer um, in particular. So that was a really good gateway into that whole world. Yeah, I bet. And it looks like you've kind of brought the the two together at your current role in Shopify, right? Yes. Which is uh, quite a neat little segue. I'm curious about what you guys are building because it sounds from what I've seen that you're leading the content in the retail area. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So good observation. Shopify is the biggest company I've ever worked for. So it definitely like it's great. I'm learning so much because when you have a company that big, you have to have kind of like different arms dedicated to different things because they're doing a lot of cool stuff. So the area, my corner of Shopify is started in retail. So that's the all the marketing around Shopify's point of sale system and our hardware for like brick and mortar sellers, brick and mortar retailers. And then we also just kind of now are working with the Shopify Plus team. So it's the editorial around Shopify Plus and retail as well. So that's the corner of Shopify I live in. Those two blogs are slash enterprise and slash retail. If anyone's curious, I know everyone's always like, well, where do you do your content? I, I only slash blog um, and the blog subfolder, which is our core team, what we call our core team. So they work on that. That's this kind of separate division. And yeah, I'm focused on retail and plus mainly. Awesome. Can I ask you a little bit about your strategy when it comes to content driving that particular arm of Shopify? What does it look like from a high level? 
Yeah, definitely. So when I started on retail, there was definitely a lot of learning I had to do just about our audience and how our sales process worked. And if there even was a sales process, because some products are completely self self drive, self serve. I wasn't sure how any of the mechanics of that worked because that can really change your content strategy um, and your approach that you take to all of that. So yeah, I, I ended up learning that we have both components. So there are some, you know, sales assisted merchants that we work with, and there are some that just come in that are on their own. And so the strategy was really about like getting the sustained kind of evergreen traffic and flow of people to know about Shopify for retail store owners and also to get them, you know, hopefully to become merchants. And so I was kind of like put on that strategy. I was chosen for the fact that I had SEO experience to kind of hopefully get that evergreen traffic from Google organic and to keep that flowing so that we could like lower our customer acquisition costs and, and keep that self-serve funnel kind of fueled. Yeah. How do you come up with, you know, getting to the weeds a little bit here, the the right topics to attract the, the people who are actually going to be interested in those particular services and products? Yeah, the cool thing about learning a new industry is that it's also really conducive to building out an editorial calendar as well. <laughs> When I'm, when I'm focused on my editorial calendar, it's not completely driven by SEO and keyword research. Obviously, we want to speak to other types of things, like that's the, not the only content we want to create. But I was doing a lot of research, learning like the topics that are discussed in the retail industry, what retail store owners want to know and be inspired by. And a lot of that information that I was looking for, you know, I found that other retail store owners are also looking for. Like you look at the search volume around these topics and you see, oh, they're also asking questions about how do I design my layout? Uh, what is lighting supposed to look like in my store? How do I optimize my aisles for like maximum purchases? All of this stuff that I'm like, oh, I'm really getting into the mind of retail store owners through the process of doing keyword research, which, which benefits me because it helps me build out my calendar. So that's kind of the process that I took for learning and also like learning for myself and learning what they wanted to know as well. Absolutely. Did you find any other sources of insight other than just keyword, like pure keyword data at all? Because those questions are quite niche, you know, how do I like lay things out in a shop? Those aren't things I would have immediately thought about. Totally. And that's the thing. It's like keyword research is only as good as like the input. Right. So like if you type anything, like you have to type something into a keyword research tool in order to get information back, whether that's like a competitor site or a particular keyword to get more keyword ideas. And so the input I used for that was like listening to calls, listening to, we have like internal podcasts at Shopify to help us kind of like learn more about different aspects of the business. I talked to our, our merchant success managers who have direct contact with our merchants. And so learning from them what those conversations were helped not only feed you know, my keyword research, knowing for me what I needed to look for, but it also helped me just learn how they talk, learn what they look for and all of that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking to customer service teams is one of my favorite sources of insight for a target audience. Sounds like you've, you've nailed it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Were there any unexpected challenges, not just in identifying the right topics, but also producing the content and getting it in front of these people that you weren't initially expecting from your previous experience? Yeah. So for me, this was unique for me in my role, but when I was hired on, which is not that long ago. I got hired in September. I was like the first editorial hire. So we didn't have actually any writers dedicated to this. So 
one of the things that I had worked with freelancers before, like at Botify and on and off different places, but I had never kind of like incorporated them as like the sole driver of content development. And I had never like sought them out. They were usually always someone I was connected with. So for the first time I had to kind of like really look at my network and say like, okay, who are the freelance writers that I can trust that would be good for this? How do I get them scheduled? How do I get them onboarded? How do I get them writing as if they were a Shopify employee? Because obviously that's really important to us. We want the voice and tone of Shopify. We want to like have cohesiveness and consistency and quality there. So I think for me, the biggest challenge that I didn't necessarily expect was just like finding the right people and managing, managing the freelancer, kind of the bench of freelancers. What did your freelance writer hiring process look like then? Duh, and I, I guess... Another question I'm eager to get into as well. It sounds like you're a fellow Airtable automations nerd. I love Airtable. <laughs> oh, preaching to the choir. Do you use any unexpected automations in order to kind of help you with those content operational side of things too? A hundred percent. And yeah, Airtable has been super helpful for this. And I know like people use, a lot of people use Asana. There are other teams at Shopify that use different kinds of things depending on what their team's needs are but I when I first got started I was like I really would like to use Airtable especially as we're like working with freelancers because it makes it really easy to your point to automate a lot of the workflow so that there's not stuff that's like lost in between the craft I think when you're working in-house alongside people and you can just slack people like hey this is ready that's a lot easier and you don't need maybe as many automations as you do when you have people working all over the place and they're not all working for Shopify. They're not in our Slack channels. You need more automation so that you don't lose a step between like, oh, this has been sitting in your inbox and you just missed it or, oh, the ex forgot to look at it. So I built in a lot of automations around that. So once, yeah, I got the freelancers onboarded, I have a whole onboarding doc for them so they can learn about Shopify and our audience and what we expect and all of that stuff. But then I, I added them in Airtable, assigned them content, and every time, for example, something, you know, gets moved to draft ready for review, I automatically get an email. Every time something needs to go to our editor, it automatically emails our editor when they switch the status. So there's a lot of things like that that just make it impossible almost to miss something, which is great. Oh, 100%. I mean, I could ask so many questions about what you do with Airtable, <laughs> you know, I, I love it. Um, how much content are you publishing on a monthly basis at the moment then? Because it sounds like you put in all of those systems out of necessity to make sure mm -hmm. nothing was missed, right? Yeah. So for us, it was, we definitely wanted more consistency just in general. So that was like our baseline goal was, hey, we had had some people writing for retail here and there, pulling from other teams' resources internally at Shopify, but there was no one really dedicated, no one person or team dedicated to just writing for retail all of the time and developing the strategy. So there was kind of nothing like that. And so, yeah, I think like that was, that was part of the thing that, that made it hard <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. Like just getting it live and like, what does this even look like? And so, yeah, just getting, getting any kind of consistency was important given the fact that we didn't really have that before. It was a little spotty. And so I think the goal was like, let's help us dominate these topics. And I came up with like an, a list of ideas. Basically, I have like an ideas vault and air table. And I saw how many there were. And I saw how many good freelancers we had. And first of all, I just you know, went about asking them, like, how many can you do per, per month while maintaining your quality? Like, how many can we expect from you? Like, and so I kind of got a gauge from them what they could do 
I tested that out to see if like any of them needed more time or less time or, or what they needed. And I think after that, comparing that with how many ideas we had and how many topics that we wanted to go after, I kind of just decided to, you know, base my volume on that. And so some weeks that's two, some weeks that's more. Um, there, ha there have been times where we have like the calendar filled out and then we hear from the product team, for example, like, hey, we have this announcement we already wrote, can it go live this week? So we end up having more just because we always want to like leave room and flexibility in the calendar to accommodate, you know, what other business units need to get out to our audience as well. So it can kind of differ depending on that. But yeah, I think it was important just in the beginning to have some sort of like dedicated cadence or else I feel like we would kind of slip and just feel like, oh, it's not ready yet. You know, deadlines are good. I think deadlines are good, but you never want to let that sacrifice quality. So anytime I felt we were rushing, I would pull back a little bit. On, on your point about deadlines, my director of editorial has so many date columns under our like master editorial planner. Do you do the same thing? So like there's a date for the first draft, the outline, the brief, the final edit, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's really smart. I only have two. So I have like the draft deadline and then the, the date that I would like it to go live. And then the go live date, I have like a calendar view set up for so that that way we can kind of really easily see like, okay, what's going live on each date? Because when you're kind of viewing it in list view and Airtable, it can get a little muddy as far as like, okay, what's going live, what date? So zoom out calendar view, what's going live on each date. That's why I think the publish date column is super important for me. And then the draft to do column is super important for us just because Obviously, we want to make sure that we're not like getting stuff submitted right on the day that it's um, supposed to go live. And then we have no time for the editor to look at it. So I think those two bare minimum would be my like important dates. But I, I like the idea of doing multiple too, like depending on how tight you want to be with your schedule. Yeah, yeah. Running an agency, we, we have to we have to be very anal about it. Um, it sounds like you've got a well-oiled production machine going, right? Do you have a deliberate content distribution strategy on the back end of that too or is it pure like organic play it yeah great question it totally depends on what the goal of each content piece is so any any piece that i have um slotted for hey we want to target this query we want to answer this question that people are searching um we we measure it that way as well like that's our distribution strategy so our goal obviously is getting traffic from Google Organic sustained over time and Google is our distribution network there. But that being said, that's not to say we can't also repurpose that and use our newsletter to distribute and use, you know, for example, we have like our demand gen team, we work with them really closely to see if there are ever any opportunities to promote specifically gated content. I think it's really good to work with them on. So we have a new study. We um, have a new download that we would like to reach more people with. Those aren't always the best for like organic search distribution. So we work with the ad team to see what channels would work best and promote them there as well. So yeah, we have various other teams to help with distribution of content, but Google Organic is, is a big one, And but that just depends on what your strategy is. It is nice to work for a company like Shopify that does have a ton of authority. Like we just get a lot of links naturally. And I think a lot of enterprise type companies are like very brand aware, like companies that have a lot of brand awareness naturally earn a lot of links. And we do benefit from that in the sense of like, it doesn't take us a lot of times as long 
to rank really well for something as a website would if it was more brand new in the startup days. One thing I've come to notice about you recently is that people are going absolutely mad for your SEO related content on Twitter. What's your philosophy around, you know, creating social content at all? Do you have one? You're kind of nodding, shaking your head there. I, yeah, no, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because it surprised me as well. Like I am equally surprised by it. I didn't like go out seeking this out expecting that I would get um, as much engagement as I was. But I think, so I saw someone's post somewhat recently that inspired me. I honestly couldn't tell you who it was. Like, I can't remember, but they were like, Hey, like it takes very little to no effort to just share your knowledge. And like best case scenario, you get a lot of new people in your network. You get people who know more about you. It can present new job opportunities in the future. It's just good in general to like build a, a network around you. Like, why not? You know, whether you do something with it or not, why not do it? And I was kind of like, huh, that's a good point. Like, I, I want to be connected more in the industry, like people outside of, you know, where I work. I want I want to have that. And so I kind of made it a personal challenge a couple months ago just to try to share at least one thing every day. And that's really my strategy. It's usually things come, come up throughout the week or, you know, I'll just, you know, be sitting around and something pops into my head inspiration does not strike every day. So I use the schedule post feature a lot of the time. So I might have like three ideas in one day, I'll schedule them all out. So I don't, you know, use them all up in one day, but I try to just be consistent just because it's a personal challenge to myself. And I, I always appreciate when I see people sharing their knowledge. So I, I'm kind of trying to pay it forward in that way too. Like, Hey, maybe not everyone knows this stuff. And someone asked it of me this week. So might as well tell everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to be working as well. People seem to uh, like retweeting it and all those good vanity metrics. They might be vanity metrics, but they're good indicators that you're doing something right. Hey. Yeah, no, it's, def it's definitely super encouraging. Like it really puts the wind in your sails to see people responding well to, to what you're posting. And overwhelmingly, it has, it has been good. You get people every once in a while who are like, hmm, I don't think so. I disagree. And I'm like, this is just my opinion. Like, there are certain things that aren't objective truths. I'm just saying, like, here's one thing you can do that I've noticed works for me. Um, you shouldn't even have to include all those caveats. But yeah, you're always going to get some people who are like, mm, no, you're wrong. A lot of people feel discouraged about things like that. Really? Are you happy to just keep going? Yeah, I think when I was first getting started on Twitter and just like being more visible in the industry, I think which came with me working at Moz, it definitely did discourage me because I didn't have a lot of confidence otherwise. Like I was, I was new, I was already vulnerable and feeling like, I don't know if I'm even good at this. Um, I didn't have a lot of that like confidence and, uh, you know, validation from my, you know, past experiences to keep me going. So now I think, you know, the, I, again, the, the feedback is overwhelmingly like mostly positive. You just get those people every once in a while. So I think like so many positive you know, comments in response are enough to kind of outweigh the bad. And then now I'm more confident in myself and my skills and experience to know that like, uh, I can just kind of ignore certain things and it doesn't bother me as much, but that comes with time. Exactly. There's a, there's a weird kind of crossover point that I hear people talk about, right? Like when they first get started out in a, I don't know, a practice or just creating content, they're afraid that they don't know enough. And then other people who I speak to have been in the game for a long time, like you and I, they kind of become jaded by their experience that they don't think other people value it. And it sounds like you've managed to just kind of ignore the latter and just do it anyway. Hey. Yeah, I think that's key. I mean, if anyone's like kind of nervous about sharing their own experience, like I was talking to someone in last week who has a ton of really great experience and he's like, yeah, sometimes I just don't share stuff. So I'm like, 
people probably already know this and they probably would think it's stupid if I share it. And I'm like, you just told me your idea and I didn't know about it. So like there are probably other people who would want to know about it. So I think the only way to really know is just to put it out there. And even if people do know it already, like, I think it's just always nice to hear how other people are doing things just because it, it normalizes content marketing and it normalizes SEO and it helps us kind of understand all the different ways to do it that are all equally valid. And if someone is wrong, like we will definitely learn. <laughs> someone yeah. will point it out. So it's a good learning mechanism too. Yeah. I think a lot of people are going to need to hear that, mm -hmm. especially, you know, in this day and age, things like haters, whatever you want to call them, trolls, or even just people who might disagree with you, it's going to happen, right? Yeah, totally. I think it's really good to learn in public. And I think it's really good just for, I don't know, anytime you have to condense an idea into a tweet, it really crystallizes it in your own mind too. So like, don't let the fear of other people's criticism stop you from like, hold you back from that learning opportunity. Cause it is like, you deserve that learning opportunity. Like go learn, go tweet about stuff. And if people comment negatively, like try your best to ignore that. I think more people will like it than not though. Yeah. It's, it, I think learning is the best expectation to come out of that, you know, not fame, not glory, not validation, but learning. hundred percent. Yeah. Is there, is there, you know, plans for a, a, a Cameron personal brand in the future, a blog or a podcast? Are you happy just sticking with Twitter for now? Yeah, it's funny. I, I feel like Twitter has been one of those things that like, I'm surprised I've kept up this long because I am, you know, like any person who works, which is probably everyone listening, like we're very busy. It's hard to find the time to do anything else. So yeah, Twitter has been one of those things that I've kept up and I feel like that's, kind of all I've done, but I do like, there are things that I would like to do. I mean, there was just recently someone asked me like, Hey, like, could you write more about this? Could you do a video on this? And I posted it to my whole network. I'm like, does anyone want this? Like, would anyone want the, a course on this or a video on this? And it got a ton of engagement. So I'm like, shoot, now I have to do it. <laughs> not that I don't want to, I just, it's, it's kind of daunting to think like, oh no, I, I really want to make this good. I want to put a lot of um, time in it to make it really valuable for people people. But I think in order to do that, I need to work beyond um, eight to five and, and work into like, you know, what I value as my free time and um, just kind of like getting over that hump of like, you know, I don't have to kill myself to do this. I just have to get my information out there. So long answer to a short question. Yes, I would want to do that. I have like so many ideas for doing that. And so I would say like, maybe stay tuned, like hold me accountable too. If you want something like harass me on Twitter and <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to do it, but I do want to do it for right now though. It's, it's just been Twitter. Yeah, that's fair. I'll set a reminder every month to just be like, Cameron, where's Where your it? videos? Where are your videos? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I find um, a lot of people are just getting started by, you know, sitting in an environment like yours right now, a home office, right? Just shooting a camera and getting started. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking of kicking off with? Yeah, 100%. I think like, you know, when we realize, when I stopped to realize like how the barrier to entry is like so much lower than it used to be, like, I don't need to be like some pro video editor. I don't need like even the conversation we're having now, I could like just, you know, it's just so much like easier than it used to be, I think, to like put information out there in a lot of different vehicles. So I think like, you know, I, if this hasn't come through already in the interview, I err on the side of being a perfectionist. And so it's hard for me to just like, like put something out there that I don't feel is like great and amazing and the best thing someone's ever seen. And so I think for people like me, it, it can stop us from actually publishing things and putting things out into the world. But yeah, like you said, it is easier than ever to kind of do this sort of thing. So I, I think like 
speaking to myself and other people who might want to do this, like you can just get started. You probably already have the tools. Like I have a webcam, I have like the ability to record. So all of that is what you need really. Yeah. Sounds like that's advice for yourself, even me and anyone listening. I had one last point on here to get kind of dig deeper into the Airtable automation side of things. It's, it's something we've already touched upon. And I think, I think the best question to kind of like wrap that up is, are, are there kind of any elements of Airtable or other technologies that you have found work so well together that have made you feel like a genius? You know, you have those aha moments. It's like, oh man, I can't believe I did this. I'm a I'm I'm a automation wizard, you know, things that have no business being put together. Oh man, yes. Airtable has that ability to like really make us feel super smart cuz like it's no code. So you can just say like if this happens, make this other thing happen. So all you really have to have is the logic and Airtable will do the rest. So it does make you feel super smart. Um but yeah, I guess like one of the things I've done that I really enjoyed is using my content calendar. So Airtable is what I use currently for my editorial calendar, but that also is just one side of the coin. Like the other side is it feeds into what I'm calling like my content library or like an asset inventory. So anytime, anytime the status of something is changed to published, it doesn't go away. And I think that's a big difference between like this and a lot of other editorial calendars, which is where like, okay, it's done, it's over with, but now it's in this inventory. And if you know Airtable, you know that you can do a lot of categorization and tags on things to where once something's in your inventory, you can go in and sort and filter and find what you need really easily. Because I think a lot of like, if you're an in-house content marketer who works with like a sales team or a demand gen team, they're constantly asking you like, do we have any content on blah, blah, blah topic? Or do we have any case studies on, you know, this particular thing? And I think you know, instead of just using like your internal employees as your search engine, or even like going to your company's own website and searching for things on your own, like direct people to Airtable because anything you've published then is going to live in there. And it's going to be super easy for them to sort and filter and find on their own. So I really love it because it like lives forever, essentially in your, in your inventory. Once something is published, it goes in there. Um, I really love that. Second thing I'll say is I really love the integration with Slack. And I, one of the things I use it for is anytime something is published, I also have it update one of our channels so that everyone can kind of know, like we're working, we're doing cool stuff. Like here's the newest thing we've published. And that's been really great for getting like external, like non-content marketers excited about the work that we're doing because they see it happening in real time. So I like that one too. Amazing to hear. I've never thought of using Airtable as an asset library, even though we're technically using it like that already. So thank you for that little tidbit. I appreciate it. I think I think that's a great place to to wrap up. Is there, yeah, where, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, what you're up to. totally. I think for right now, I do have a website. It's super outdated. <laughs> so <laughs> don't go there. Um, eventually, yeah, maybe you can go to CameronJenkins.com. But if you do go there, yeah, you'll see it's super out of date. But yeah, for now, Twitter, I think is like where I'm pretty engaged. I try to respond to people's DMs. And um, if you tweet at me, all of that stuff. So um, my handle is Cami underscore Jenkins. Um, and I always say, I'm sorry for the confusion because I go by Cammy, Cameron, and Cam. You can call me whatever, but it's K-A-M-M-I-E underscore Jenkins. And, and that's my handle. Perfect. Thank you ever so much for joining me, Cameron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Before you dash, just a quick note to share a free ebook we just published called The Content Operations Playbook. 
If you're interested in content marketing and SEO, then this ebook is for you. We lift the hood up on our own editorial and content production processes from hiring writers, creating solid content briefs, polishing content to be the best it can be, and of course, distributing it to actually generate traffic. It's totally free and you can download it over at grizzle.io forward slash content ops. That's www.grizzle.io forward slash content ops. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to subscribe. We've got a lot of great conversations lined up with experts in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship coming up. Thanks again.